Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode number 64 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Josh Steinley of the full-service digital agency MWI, who shares how he 10x his agency from 10K a month to over $100,000 a month in one year by finding the right partners. Josh's agency was slowly killing him. He had no life. He was in massive debt, and he wasn't making any money. He went four years without collecting a paycheck, all while putting in 80 to 100 hours every single week. Today, he shares how he's able to turn things around and build a profitable, growing agency by finding two different types of partners. First, somebody to help run the business, and second, somebody with a platform he can leverage to grow his own authority. It wasn't an easy process, but Josh lays out everything you need to know to find the right people and platforms to help grow your business. Whether you're considering shutting down your agency or you're making money hand over fist, there's a lot to learn from today's chat. So without further ado, here's Josh. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Andy, for having me here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. My friend Matt was, was talking about you. So like I said before the call, he's been talking you up. There's a lot of pressure on this. So I'm expecting some big things. Well, I've had a good night's rest, so I'm good to go. All right, perfect. And so you launched MWI back in 1999. You had a period in there where it was a real struggle, including almost having to shut the doors. But now you're growing faster than ever and have built a multi-million dollar agency. Can you share the backstory of how this all came about? Yeah, so like you said, I started in 1999. I was a college student at the time, and I ran it as a college student for about two years until I graduated and then just kept on doing it. That was, this has been the only job I've ever, like the only real job I've ever had. And there were two iterations of MWI. The first was actually called MindWire Interactive, and that's where the MWI name came from. That's what I started while I was in college. I sold that in 2003 because I had a partner. We didn't really get along and a buyer came along and it seemed like a good opportunity to part ways amicably. And so we sold the company in January of 2003 and then I started over again under the name MWI. And I thought that my partner was holding me back and I thought that if I was just free of my partner, I could do whatever I wanted and everything would just be amazing. And so when we sold the company, and that turned out to be a bad deal, by the way. I mean, everybody thinks, oh, you sold the company, you made some money. Well, no, actually, I lost $40,000 on that deal. So it was a terrible deal. And it really hurt a lot and for years. But I sold that company, and I was on my own. And I just thought, you know, it doesn't matter. Even though this was a bad deal, I'm on my own. And now I can do whatever I want, and everything's going to be awesome. And then from 2003 to 2007... I made so many mistakes, I could not pay myself a dime during those years. So I went four years with zero pay from the company, just working completely for free. And I was working 80, 100-hour weeks. I was sleeping on the office floor. I was just killing myself. I didn't see my wife. I didn't go to any social functions. I missed all sorts of family events. And just it was just a huge, big mess. And after... Four years of that, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to die here if I keep doing this. I'm losing money. I'm getting into massive debt, and something's got to change. And so then I started looking at 
things I could do to change the business and fix the business. So around 2007, things started turning around a bit and I started making slightly better decisions, but I still had all this business debt. And then uh, I... In 2007, I kind of retreated from the world a bit. I said, this isn't working. I let all my staff go, put everybody on contract, went back to working out of my house, which is how I had started in 1999. And I said, I'm going to retreat until I figure this out. And then in 2012, almost 10 years after I had sold the company and ditched my partner and went on my own and thought I was going to rule the world that way, I realized... I really need to have a partner again. And so in 2013, I found a partner, brought on a partner, and we started working together. And then everything started going fantastic from that point. Not everything, but uh, things improved dramatically at that point. And that's the short story on how we got to where we are today. There's a lot of detail in there I skipped over, but that's kind of the brief overview. Yeah. And before we do get into what actually changed and what made things turn around. I have a couple of questions uh, about the lead up to that. So what honestly, at, at that point, when, when you're when you're sleeping in the office, when you move back the office, basically get rid of your employees, move into your basement as your office, what keeps you going? You know, it was, it seemed like success was always around the corner. This was, it was like there was somebody dangling this carrot in front of me and I was like, oh, I almost got it. I almost got it. I almost got it. And so People ask me, they're like, how did you do this for 10 years? Why did you do this for 10 years? I mean, you're not getting paid for four years. Why did you even go six months without getting paid? And the reason was I'd every single month, I would look at the last month and I'd say, wow, that was really tough. But this happened and this happened and these great things changed. And this month, this huge deal's on the table. And if I just hold out for two more weeks, I'll get this big deal. And every single month was that way. Every single month I could look back and I could say, wow, that was tough, but I learned a lot. I've made progress. I've made these changes and I've got this big opportunity right in front of me. And it went that way for 10 years where just every month it was like, oh, I've got to keep on going because if I quit now and this thing's on the table and it was just, and yet year after year, I would also look back and say, wait a second. Like every month is this way, but then it never, I mean, it sort of materializes, but then it doesn't. And, and it would go up and down too. I mean, I'd go from a hundred thousand a year in income, or I mean revenue with the business to 500,000 in revenue. And I think, okay, I'm growing, everything's working out. And then something bad would happen. I go back down a hundred thousand. I'd be like, oh man, like, oh, that's terrible. And now I got to work again. And then I'd start working and then we'd close a bunch of deals and we'd be like, okay, we're back on track. And, and the time just went by. And it's amazing when you're going through this kind of thing and you're working, the time just flies by. And then you're looking back and you're saying, man, 10 years just went by and I'm not really any farther along than I was. But and so it did, like along the yeah. way, it's not as though you're, you're knocking on doors, no one's answering, you're not getting anything coming in, and you just keep going blindly. You're, you're getting taste of success, you're getting some traction, you're learning a bit, then sometimes things regress. But it's not as though it's just staying, kind of you hit a plateau and you just stayed there constantly for 10 years. It's, there are ups and downs along the way. Right. If I had plateaued, I would have quit or I would have done something else. It was that there was always this growth, but then there'd be a huge setback, but then there'd be growth again. So if you looked at the revenue of the company, it was this kind of 
45 or 30 degree angle of growth in revenue. So like really good growth. It's going up, 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 up. And then all of a sudden there'd be like this cliff and it would drop. And then it would go up, 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 up. And then a cliff and it would drop. Well, it was those up parts that kept me going. And the cliffs were really quick. I mean, I would get over those really quick because I'd learned some big lesson and change things and fix it. And so I was always making progress personally. I was always learning a lot and it was very engaging and very interesting work, but financially it was not that great. And personally it was just, it was really wearing on me and kind of killing me up until 2007. Things got better in 2007, but then it was still a hard slog and there's still been challenges since then, but it's those challenges that really keep you going. That's what makes business interesting. If it were just, even if it were consistent growth, that would be kind of boring in a way because it is those challenges when where you, you come up against something you think, this is going to kill me. This is going to put me out of business. And then you overcome that. That kind of gets your adrenaline going and you become a little bit of a junkie to that. And you're like, wow, like I don't want to create these challenges, but these are really exciting. And it's really fun to overcome those challenges and then look back and say, wow, look at that. I got through that. I made it. So there was one more, there's one more factor in this that kept me going. And that was definitely pride and ego. I mean, I definitely had an ego wrapped up in this and I didn't want to be seen to fail, especially in the longer it goes on, the more you're like, well, now I've been doing this for 10 years. If I quit now and I fail, man, this is really embarrassing. And so there was always this feeling of, I've got to make this work. I've got to make this work. And so now identity is invested in it. Yeah. I mean, this is my whole identity. I've been doing this for 17 years now. This is my whole career. And if I fail now, it's like, well, why'd you do that for 20 years, almost 20 years, Josh? And then you failed. Like why? And, and, uh, then you, you read these stories. Like, uh, a lot of books have told this one about these guys who had the gold mine. And this is a real story. The guys who had a gold mine and they worked on this gold mine for years and years and years, I don't know, 10, 20 years or whatever. And then they finally said, we're not going to find gold here. They gave up. They sold the mine. Some guy bought it and he dug three feet and he found this huge gold deposit. And you're just like, oh, man, I don't want to be that guy who quit right when he was about to succeed. And so things like that keep me going, too. And and now it actually seems to be paying off. So I spent... 13, 14 years building it up, failing, not having things work. And now all of a sudden we're into the multiple millions. We're going global. Things are growing. And so now it, it does seem like it paid off and we're making this progress towards the large global agency that we always wanted to build, that I always wanted to build. And so hopefully this story works out and we have, we're able to succeed at really creating that large thing. And I can say, yeah, I failed for 14 years and then it worked out. But uh, the the pride the pride has been a factor in keeping me going too. I, I think the numbers were in that turning point year, that turning year. What I have written down it says you went from 10k a month to 120k a month in one year. Is that accurate? That's right. What happened? I mean, you said you brought a partner on, but what actually changed to make this possible? So this is the beginning of 2013, and what had happened is, so from 2007, which was one of my turnarounds, but that's when I went back into my basement and I said, I'm going to put everybody in contract. That's when I started getting profitable, and even though my revenues were down, I was making more money from a profit standpoint. I was paying off debt, and 
I was also trying to get healthy during that time. I had gotten really fat, out of shape. I couldn't walk up a single flight of stairs without wheezing for five minutes afterwards. I mean, I'd, I'd walk up 10 stairs and then I couldn't talk to somebody for five minutes because I couldn't breathe enough to talk. I mean, I was really out of shape. And in 2007, I said, my business is a mess. My life is a mess. I'm going to fix this. So I got into triathlon and I ended up doing a couple of half Ironman events and marathons and all this stuff that I swore I would never do. Like I hated running. and but I, but I did all this stuff and I got into shape. And then I just kind of focused on myself and my body and focused on getting the business profitable, but not growth. I wasn't trying to grow it. I was just trying to get things healthy with the business. And then it was, I did that for a few years. And then in 2000, well, 2012, I spent all of that year trying to find a partner for my business. And in the beginning of 2013, I thought I found the right guy. Um, But at this point, the business fell off another one of these cliffs. I was working with a partner. So I was basically selling and closing deals. And then I had this partner who would take care of all the fulfillment. And so he was a separate company. When I say a partner, I don't mean like, close business partner, I mean just like a fulfillment partner that I would turn over the business to and he'd get it done. He brought on a new account manager and that account manager just didn't manage our clients well and all of a sudden I was losing all of my clients rapidly. And so we crashed and we got down to where we had three clients left and we were bringing in about 10,000 a month and all of that was going to contractors. So I'm back down to making zero money all of a sudden. And it was at this point that I brought in my partner and he was really strong on business development and sales, which was a weakness of mine. And so I said, hey, we need to sell stuff here. And I was going to put him on the phones and send him to networking events and have him go out and close deals. But then this really lucky break came along, this blessing, which was I got the opportunity to write for Forbes magazine. And I started writing for Forbes magazine and I started writing about digital marketing and what I know and what I do. And that started generating leads for the agency. It's not that I was writing about my agency. It was I was writing about digital marketing and then people would read the article. They liked the article and they would do their investigation, figure out who I was. And then they would contact me and say, hey, I read your article and I love what you said and we want to hire your agency. So that combined with bringing on the partner were the two parts that brought this rapid growth. So we'd get calls in from people saying, hey, I read your Forbes article, and then I figured, hey, why don't I just hire this guy, and so I want to talk to you. And I'd hand that over to my new partner that was doing the sales and business development, and he was just really good at talking to people, figuring out what their needs were, selling the value of what we could do, and we just started closing deals right and left and just started growing rapidly And that's how we went from almost going out of business and getting down to about 10,000 a month in revenue. And over the next 12 months, we got up to 120,000 in revenue, which blew past what we had ever done before, because I had never done over 500,000 in a year. And now all of a sudden we're doing 120,000 a month. And so that's, that was exactly how it happened. That's how we achieved that growth. And then it's continued since then. To back up a little bit, why were you so focused on finding a partner? Because I'd been trying it without a partner for 10 years and it wasn't working out. I mean, I I wasn't growing and I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I, I needed somebody to hold me accountable. I needed an accountability buddy and I was working, but... 
I knew that if I had somebody looking over my shoulder, I didn't want somebody to micromanage me, but I just knew if I had somebody I had to report to, I would work differently. I would work better. It would keep me on my toes. And I also knew that I needed somebody to really handle that sales side of things because everything starts with sales. If you don't have business coming in, then there's nothing else to do. When you were with that other partner, though, weren't you the one doing sales? I was doing the one I was the one doing sales before I had the partner, but I wasn't really great at it. So I would get a I would get a lead in and I wouldn't even contact that lead for three or four days. And anybody who's done sales knows that speed is the name of the game because people contact you when they're ready to buy. And I would just wait for like three days and then I'd email them back and be like, oh, hey, sorry for the delay. And like, I was just totally lazy about it. And I was busy. I was just like, uh. and so the only people I was signing up as clients were people who were really relaxed about their own businesses and who were willing to put up with almost anything, which in a way was great because once I got, got them signed up as clients, like they were just super chill to work with and easy Um, But at the same time, they weren't necessarily the hustlers who had fast growing businesses. And that's why they hired me because I was lazy on that sales call. So I was like, I need a sales guy who like answers the phone immediately, who responds to emails immediately. And also is just better. Like I wasn't super good at the whole sales process. I didn't have any sales training. I didn't really know what I was doing. And this guy that I brought in, Corey Blake, like had the training, had the background, had the mentality for it. Not that he was like a slick sales guy or anything, but he was just really good at talking to people, figuring out their needs, and then speaking to those needs. And and also part of what triggered this was I had a great friend that he had worked with me and uh, he had given me a lot of advice over the years that had helped me on a personal level and with the business. His name is Mark Browning. And So Mark and I had gone on a trip to Brazil together and we were out in the middle of nowhere in the state of Hondonia driving a car. And I remember clearly where we were and he turned to me and he's like, Josh, I know you don't want to hear this. I know you don't want to have a partner, but you need to bring on a partner. And at that moment, it just rung true to me that, yeah, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years. It's not working out and I've got to do this. And that was the very moment that I thought, yeah, this is time. I've got to change something. And as soon as I got home from Brazil, I started looking for that partner. And then where did you ultimately find Corey? (laughs) So Corey is my brother-in-law. He's my wife's brother. And I swore I would never hire family. And because I don't want to get into that whole mess of you hire family and then they don't work out and you have to fire them. And then it makes family reunions awkward. And there's just so many messes that can come from hiring family. So I swore, like, I'll never even hire family part-time to do something. I'm not hiring them as interns, nothing. Like, I am not going to touch that. And the same goes for friends. I was just like, I don't want to touch that. If I hire somebody and they become a friend, that's fine. But I'm not going to hire somebody who's already my friend because then they might end up not being my friend. So what happened was Corey and I were together Christmas of 2012 and I just started telling him about some of the challenges I had with the business and he started giving me sales advice. And then I went back and I applied it and it worked. So then I came back to him and I'm like, Hey, like talk to me some more about this. And he'd give me some more tips and I'd go apply those tips and they'd work. And so then I came back to him and I'm like, can you like do sales consulting for me part-time. I'll pay you like 500 bucks a month or something and I can just ask you, but I don't want to be bugging you unless I'm paying you. And he's like, sure, yeah. So we worked that way and he was just giving me advice and it was working out really well. So then I went back and I said, hey, how about if you do like part-time, like 
10 hours a week or something and just help me with this little part. And he's like, yeah, sure. So he started helping me out part time with this. And it just grew organically from one step to the other. We took it slow and it really took most of 2013. And it wasn't until uh, September-ish of 2013 that I was like, Corey, you've got to come on full time. I need you. We've been working together. It's working out. We sat down, we talked about the family thing and we're like, you know, if this goes really bad, can we still be friends? Can we still show up at reunions and not be mad at each other? And we both agreed that we were reasonable people and that we could deal with this like adults. And so we thought, okay, we're both willing to take this risk. And so he jumped in at the end of 2013. And then by, I can't remember exactly when it was, but maybe January 2014, I had gone back to him and said, hey, I want you to be a full partner with me in this business. And so that's how the whole family element snuck in. This is obviously going ahead a little bit, but uh, what changed to to make you decide to make him a partner? It was just seeing that if I gave up a chunk of the business to him, that he would be committed to it. And I knew that I knew that if I brought him in, he was going to close deals and he was going to make stuff work. But I also knew that he was more than just a sales guy, more than just a biz dev guy. I could see that he had entrepreneurial tendencies and I was looking towards the day that someday I would leave MWI and I would want to turn it over to somebody. And I was thinking about, okay, I've got that, you know, here I am, we've got two people in the company and I'm already thinking about succession plans. But I thought someday if I grow this, I need somebody I can turn this over to that I can trust and that I know is going to do a good job. And I saw that potential in Corey and he was a young guy and I'm getting older. So I thought, okay, he's like 20 years behind me age wise. But if I bring this guy on and I can train him and he's the right guy, then this is great because he's starting out young. He'll get a bunch of experience in the business. He can be there the whole time it's getting built up. And then he can take over this someday and run this. And I can move on to the next thing or retire, or do whatever it is I'm going to do. And so I, I saw this opportunity coming together and it just seemed like a perfect fit. And we just went from one step to the other and that plan is working out now where Corey has been taking over more and more of the business and not just doing sales, but running every aspect of the business. And every time I look at the details of what he's doing, I think this is great. He's doing exactly what I would do and he's doing a better job at it. So this is perfect. (laughs) And what advice would you give to other agency owners to first identify whether or not they need a partner? And then if they think they do, how would you recommend they go about figuring out what skills they need, what characteristics they need, and, and how to find them. The situation I found myself in was that I had to run the business for a long time by myself, and it wasn't working out. It was failing. So if any business owner finds themselves in that circum- those circumstances, that might be a big red flag that, well, maybe I should look at bringing on a partner. Maybe that would be a big change in my business to fix things, to get things working right. Now, the issue is it's so easy to bring on a partner that actually puts you out of business or is a bad fit. I got lucky in that I found somebody that was just the absolute perfect fit. If he hadn't been, then this would be a very different story today. But he happened to be just the perfect fit and the right guy for the job at the right time. In terms of identifying whether you need a partner or not, I mean, if you're running a business by yourself and it's going great and it's successful... Could bringing on a partner make that better? Maybe, but it could also ruin things. So I wouldn't necessarily say that bringing on a partner is always the right thing to do. But if you're failing, then 
maybe it wouldn't hurt to try or maybe it'd be a great thing to try. For me, the other factor that I was looking at was that I knew that I worked better when I had somebody that I had to report to, somebody that I would be accountable to. And it's not that we have a system for accountability per se. It's more just that I know that anything I do is going to come out and Corey's going to know about it. If I don't do any work for two weeks, then I know that Corey's going to notice that. And so it keeps me on my toes. It just keeps me working. It keeps me from getting lazy. And I want to, I mean, I have a persona to maintain with him, you know, like he comes into this, he's the young guy. I'm the old experienced guy. I got to maintain that, right? I got to, I got to keep looking good. So I got to keep hustling and doing work. And that type of stuff keeps me motivated and keeps me going. It's just a little tickler in the background that says, hey, you got to work hard because you don't want to look like the lazy business owner who just brings in somebody else and leeches off of them. So I got to make sure that I'm contributing value. And there's a little bit of a competitive thing going there, like a friendly competition where it's like we both have to show each other that we're adding value to this business. And that motivates us and that keeps us going in a good way. So in terms of finding a partner, for me, I went out to my network. This is when I spent all of 2012. I just went out. I talked to everybody that I thought was a potential partner for the business. And I sat down with a lot of people and I talked with them openly about this. Hey, I'm looking for a partner. I think you might be a fit. Can we talk about this? And nobody... Either people weren't interested or they just weren't quite the right fit. It wasn't the right time for them or it just wasn't a situation that seemed like it would work out. Nothing really clicked. And so I talked to a lot of people and then I ran out of people that I knew. And at that point, I thought, I do not want to go find somebody I don't know to come in and own half this company. I just that would be such a huge risk. And so I'd kind of given up at this point but just had it in my mind that I need a partner, but I have no idea who it can be. I've exhausted my entire network. And I wasn't looking for family, of course, so I had never even thought of going to my brother-in-law and talking to him about it. And then it was just serendipity that he came along. So if I were in this position again of saying I need to go and find a partner, I would do the same thing. I'd go out to my network. I'd be talking to my network. But also, if I could go back in time... I would have done a lot more networking to build up that network years ago because I'm not going to bring somebody in as a partner if I haven't known that person pretty well for two, three, four years. Well, the day you need a partner, it's too late. So if you don't need a partner today, but hey, maybe you're going to need a partner four or five years down the road, today is the time to start networking and start building up that network. And in retrospect, I could have been much more social. I could have been reaching out to people. I could have been developing more relationships. And then I might have had 10 other people I could have considered as business partners instead of the six or seven people that I ended up contacting about it. So, you know, people say, oh, I network all the time. I don't really get anything out of it. Well, just having those relationships, you never know what's going to happen with those relationships. And I don't believe in networking just to like use people, but You network, it's fun. I mean, I love talking to people. I love getting to know people regardless of any business benefit or financial benefit I get. But at the same time, it's easy to say, well, I'm just going to focus on my business. I'm going to just be heads down working all the time. I'm not going to go to events. It's just a waste of time. It's easy to say that. But those things can have long-term dividends and long-term payoffs. 
And when the day comes that you need to reach out to somebody, those things can be huge. I mean, the reason I'm writing for Forbes is because I had a 10-year business relationship with the person who introduced me to Forbes. And during those 10 years, I got nothing out of that relationship financially. I got some good advice here and there and stuff. And that person got nothing from me for those 10 years. But we just kept in touch and we talked to each other and we just saw each other at events and said, hey, how's it going? And then after 10 years of that relationship, all of a sudden she introduced me to an editor at Forbes. I got into Forbes and that changed my whole business. So that's the power of networking for the long term. But let's go with that though. So with when you when you got into Forbes, this was combined with with partnering up with Corey, you also got into Forbes and that started to get the ball rolling on generating a lot of interest for you. Was it as simple as you got this first article published and then the phone started ringing off the hook? What did it actually look like? No, there was actually about something like a six month lag in there because when I started writing for Forbes, I didn't want to get kicked off. I recognized that this was an amazing opportunity. I better not mess this up. And I thought, I'm not going to do anything that seems the least bit self-promotional. So I'm not even going to write about digital marketing. So at first, I was writing about my entrepreneurial experiences and growing a business and startups and all sorts of things related to more like general business and entrepreneurship. And I wasn't touching digital marketing on purpose because I thought, oh, if I even mention SEO, then the editors might come in and say, oh, you're just promoting your business and we're kicking you off. So I, I wanted to really steer clear of that. But after a few months, I noticed, hey, there are other contributors out there who run SEO firms and all they talk about is SEO. But I looked at the way that they were talking about it and they weren't promoting their companies. They were just talking about topics related to SEO because they're the experts and they were just sharing advice and sharing tips and and telling people how to do stuff. So I thought, well, hey, I can do that. And so I thought, well, what are some of the questions that I get asked frequently? And what are some of the pain points I see with clients? And what mistakes do I see clients making? And so I took a topic which was related to my business, which was how to hire an SEO firm. And I looked at this and I said, okay, this frustrates me as a SEO firm owner because a lot of clients come to me and I'm pitching them and I know that my agency is the best fit for this client, but I can't convince them because they think I'm too expensive or they think I don't have the right experience or background, but I know that I'm the right fit, but it's just hard for me to prove this to them. And so I try, I try to use testimonials, I try to use references, I try to tell them stories. I try to do these different things to convince them, but they're not looking at these things. They're just looking at the price tag and that's all. And so I thought, what can I write to get these people to see this is the way you hire an SEO firm. Here's the right way to hire an SEO firm because I run into too many clients that are going about this the wrong way. And we would have lots of clients that would come to us and they'd say, we really want to work with MWI, but you're too expensive. So I'm going to go hire this other firm over here. And then six months later, they'd come back to us and say, wow, that was a huge mistake. We just lost six months. We'd got nothing for the money we put in. And now we really understand the value of MWI. And I'm sitting there saying, I told you so, but I don't want to tell you I told you so. So um, I thought, well, if I can write an article about this, then I can tell them so ahead of time. And then hopefully they come to us and they trust us because they read this article. So I wrote this article on how to hire an SEO firm. 
And that was one of the first articles I wrote, and that was the one article that really blew things up for MWI because people found this article at the exact right point in their buying cycle. They're going to Google, they're typing in, I mean, they're, they want to hire an SEO firm, so they go to Google and they say, how do I hire an SEO firm? What's the right way to do this? I'm confused. And then they see my Forbes article pop up, and they read it, and they say, wow, this guy just told me the right way to hire an SEO firm. Well, who is this guy? Oh, he runs an SEO firm. Well, I should just go hire him because I like this article. And that's the one where we started just getting a flood of leads coming in and the phone ringing off the hook and a ton of emails. And that single blog post, that single post on Forbes, we can track over $2 million in revenue back to that one post alone. So that was a huge one, easily over $2 million. I could say over three million, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. But definitely over two million. And I mean, honestly, listening to you talk about this, a lot of what you're talking about is straightforward, fundamental content marketing. Is figure out what your target market has questions about, figure out what they're concerned about, figure out what they don't know but they need to know, and then answer it for them. But what you're doing is taking it a step further by putting out that content on an already established platform like Forbes so that not only is it going to be easier for them to find than on your personal blog, but you also get a, a lot of credibility by being associated with a big name like that. Did you find that to be the case? Right. I mean, I blogged on my personal blog for 10 years and nobody really cared. I'd get 100, 200 readers a, a, a month. It was just small traffic and or actually 100, 200 a day or something, but it's still small traffic. But then I write for Forbes, and all of a sudden, people care about what I'm writing because it's on Forbes. I didn't change what I was writing about. I just changed the channel that I was writing for. And yeah, all of a sudden, the credibility of that Forbes brand made all the difference in the world. Because if somebody went and read that How to Hire an SEO Firm on my SEO Firm website, they'd be like, well, of course this guy's writing it the way that he wants to write it. And they wouldn't really trust it. And they'd just be like, well, who is this guy? And what is this company? I don't know anything about him. And if they found it on my personal blog, they'd say the same thing. But they see it on Forbes and they're like, well, it's on Forbes. I mean, this guy must know what he's talking about. There are all these assumptions that are made just because it's on Forbes. And then when they contact us, it cuts out a lot of questions from the client because they've already answered a lot of questions in their mind just by it being on Forbes. So they're not trying to figure out if we're a credible agency. They've already decided that we are. So it's when, if somebody came to me through my own website, they'd be maybe 15% converted to the idea of working with us. And then we'd have to work on the other 85%. But when they come to us through Forbes, they're already 85% convinced that they want to work with us. And it's just that last little bit that we have to get them over to convert them to a customer. So that credibility was a huge factor in the success of my content. Because, yeah, if you're putting up your content in a place where it doesn't have that natural credibility, it's just a lot more work. Yeah, if people are going to view it with skepticism, they're always going to see another agenda. You could write a very salesy piece. And if you're just pitching your services, if it's transparently promotional, it doesn't really matter where it's published. People are going to see through that. But when you're putting out genuinely helpful content for people in a publication that has some credibility, that's where you're going to see some great results. And so after you got some amazing results from this, What did you do next? Did you keep putting out more content on Forbes? Did you go to other sites? Did you do all of it? What was your strategy from there to really take this to the next level? 
or one of my big concerns when I started writing for Forbes was, what if I get kicked off of Forbes? What if something happens? What if they change this contributor model and stop doing it? But I just was worried that somehow this would end and I wouldn't have anything else. So I thought I've got to manage my risk here. So I leveraged Forbes and I went to Entrepreneur Magazine. I said, hey, I write for Forbes. Can I write for you guys too? And they gave me a slot writing. And then I went to other publications and I did the same pitch. And I said, hey, I'm writing for these other publications. Can I write for you? And that's how I expanded into writing for Mashable, TechCrunch, and 10 or 15 other publications and started getting my content everywhere because I was worried that I might lose one or another and that I needed to have these other places that I could go publish. And that actually happened earlier or last year. I did lose the position at Forbes. I'd written 164 articles for Forbes and then I had a misunderstanding with one of the editors and I got kicked off, but I had all these other publications I could go to. And I also developed a lot of relationships with other writers so that even though I got kicked off of Forbes, I can still write an article and go to one of these other writers at Forbes and say, hey, I've got this article to pitch to you. And because they know me and they know that I'm a writer, they trust me and they'll still publish my articles. Maybe not verbatim. Maybe they'll rewrite it to be in their own voice. Maybe they'll add some stuff in there, but I can pitch them and they'll listen to me and seriously consider my articles where they might not consider it if it was just somebody they didn't know pitching them. So I've still got that Forbes channel and I've got all these other channels I can write for. So now I focus my attention mostly on Entrepreneur and Mashable. But it's, yeah, I leveraged that Forbes position to make sure that I was safe and that I'd be able to write and get my content out to a lot of other places if I needed to. I'm going to stop Josh right there for a quick word from a sponsor, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets and start getting the insights into how your team is spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you. You probably know that by now, but what you may not know is that we recently launched a platform called Hubstaff Talent that makes it easy for you to find and hire high-quality freelancers around the world. Whether you just need extra hands for a specific project or you're looking for something long-term, Hubstaff Talent is what you need. Best of all, it's 100% free. We don't take a cut and we don't act as a middleman. Our goal is for you to use Hubstaff for time tracking, but you're not required to do so. If you're looking to grow your team with remote freelancers and don't want to pay big fees to Upwork, head over to talent.hubstaff.com today and create a free profile for your agency and start posting your jobs. That's talent.hubstaff.com. All right, let's get back to Josh. After expanding your reach by posting on all these different publications, there still is, I'm guessing, value in in looking at other channels to develop your authority. So have you started looking beyond just written content on blogs? Yes. So the one thing that I wish I had been doing earlier and I wasn't, I knew I should, was video. And you've seen how hot video is with the Gary Vaynerchuk and his Ask Gary V show and Casey Neistat. And there are all these other influencers out there who are using video. And I knew I should be doing this, but video is tough. I mean, it's it's hard to put your face out there. You're like, oh, I don't look good today. And I, you know, I'm uncomfortable. I don't look at the camera right. My smile looks funny. Like, it's so easy to get caught up on all this superficial stuff. And then also, I mean... Video is hard because you make a mistake and either you just roll with it 
or you edit it, or you go back and start over again. Whereas with writing, it's like you make a mistake, you take five seconds, you fix it, no big deal. And with writing, even if I publish it, I can publish it and then come back three months later and say, oh, I wanna revise this and change things. With video, yeah, you can't really do that. So video just, I stayed out of video for all the normal reasons that people stay away from video, but I knew I needed to jump into it because I knew other people were not doing it, and so that was an opportunity for me to get in there and make a little niche for myself. So so just lately, I've started doing video. I've got a YouTube channel set up, and now we're doing it for MWI. We're doing it uh, for this Influencer Inc. thing that I'm launching, which is an initiative to help people become influencers. And I've started doing more video, and it's not like I've done it long enough to get huge traction. But just the little bit that I've done the video, I'm seeing great results from it. I'm getting leads from it. I'm getting positive feedback. I'm able to help people. And even if I put out a video and it just gets 100 views or something, hey, that's still 100 people that I'm influencing. And when one of those people comes back to me and says, hey, I watched your video and I went and I did this thing that you recommended and it worked and it's changing my business, it's like, well, that makes it all worth it. I don't care if 100 people watch it versus 10,000. If I can influence one person that way and get one view on the video, that's worth it to me to make that video. So I'm really enjoying video now. It's something that so many agency owners, in particular business owners of all kinds, they overemphasize the exact numbers in terms of reach of video, of blogs, of whatever. But especially as an agency owner, influencing just a small handful of the right people can have a disproportionate impact on your business, especially when clients are worth tens of thousands of dollars over the lifetime of an engagement with you. So you don't need to have a massive audience to have a real impact on your bottom line at the end of the day. No, I mean, you you get a few of the right connections and that can make all the difference in the world. You can obviously build a good size agency on, on the back of, of authority in the way you've approached it so far. How much of your revenue of your new clients today do you attribute to this type of, of marketing effort? Uh, I'd say 80-90% of our clients come through content marketing slash PR. Uh, the rest, the rest would be SEO and word of mouth type stuff. And I might be a little bit off on that. Maybe it's like 60, 40 instead of 80, 20 or something, but it's definitely the clear majority of it has come through the content marketing and the PR and the articles that I'm putting out there. Roughly how big is MWI today? Uh, in terms of revenue, we're approaching about 3 million a year and then, uh, in terms of staff, we've got just over 20 people full-time, and then we have a large number of contractors that we use regularly. Mm-hmm. And this is a question I usually ask at the end, but, but for you, uh, this, I want to ask this first because I have a, a few other questions around it. What are the long-term goals that you have for MWI? So when I started this agency, it was in 1999, and I was researching large digital agencies that were just starting. I mean, this was a new thing. So there were companies like Razorfish, Sapient, uh, man, Agency.com. I mean, back when you had a .com on your name and everybody did. Uh, so th- these were some of the big agencies that I was looking at at the time, and that's what I wanted to create. I wanted to create not just a regional boutique agency or a specialist agency, I wanted to create one of these huge consulting firm type agencies, but I wanted to do it in a new way that was different and that wasn't the old paradigm of 
the way businesses are run. I wanted to do something that was new and different and exciting, that the place that people love to work at. And I wanted to do it at scale. I wanted to make it big. That's what I started out with. And that's always been the dream all these years. And that's what was killing me all these years is I was saying, this is what I want to accomplish. And here I've been doing this for 10 years and I can't even get past half a million. I mean, I'm not even getting a start here. And so when things started going better in 2013 and then bringing on my partner and looking at this and we started developing systems and processes and scaling. And now we're in this process where we're saying, how do we create new offices around the world and how do we set up the systems and how do we manage these people and what type of people are we looking to recruit to manage each of these individual offices Now it's getting exciting because finally, after 17 years of failure and lessons learned, now I can see that we're making this traction to the point where I can see that, hey, you know, 10 years down the line, we might actually have 2,000, 3,000, 6,000 employees working all around the world in multiple offices. And that's what we want to create. I was, I had, I had this amazing, crazy opportunity about three weeks ago. I went to Necker Island in the Caribbean, met Richard Branson, and I was, and I was, yeah, it was this crazy thing. It came out of nowhere. Somebody invited me to this event, and it was all these marketing executives and ad agency people. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm this tiny guy. I run a 25 person agency, and I'm sitting next to this guy, and he, I'm like, oh, so what do you do, Brian? Oh, I'm the head of MediaVest, and we own Publicis, the largest PR firm in the world with, I don't know, tens of thousands of employees. They have to spend $14 billion on behalf of their clients every year. I'm just like, <laughs> okay. oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I run a little agency. It's a little smaller than yours. You know, like I'm sitting here next to all these people, and I'm, I'm sitting next to Gary Vaynerchuk's partner who helped him grow VaynerMedia from 10 people to 600 people. And I'm sitting next to all these people. I'm like... This is what I want to do. Like these people aren't talking about tens of thousands of dollars. They're talking about hundreds of millions and billions. And they're doing work for Nike and Under Armour and all these huge brands. And I'm looking at this. I'm like, this is the level that I want MWI to be on. This is my goal. I want to make this big. But I don't want to do this at the cost of quality and culture. For us, culture and the quality of the work come first. And if we have to choose between size and quality and culture, we'll choose quality and culture every day. But if we can get the quality and the culture right, and we can start scaling that and we can manage that well, then I feel like we have an obligation to grow this because I feel like we're doing something good in the world. We're making a difference. And if we can make a positive difference in the world, I don't want to keep that to just 50 employees that we're changing the lives of. I want to spread that to hundreds of people And I want to change all sorts of things in the world and make a big impact. And so our our first focus is the quality and the culture. But if we can get that right, then we want to scale this. We want to grow this. And we want to make this the largest digital marketing agency in the world. Wow. And what other than making sure the fit in the culture are there? There's obviously going to be a ton that will change as you grow and continue to scale. But what right now do you see as being the biggest challenge you'll have to face down the road as you continue to grow? Hiring still. I mean, it's there's this idea as an entrepreneur and maybe it's like my religious background and stuff too. Like I want to believe that people can improve and can become better and can change and can become different people. And so sometimes I hire people 
looking at the vision of what's possible with that person, and I don't pay enough attention to who they are today and their proven track record. And then they come inside the company and they don't perform, they don't fit, and I'm just like, oh, you just need to change this and this and this, and you know, you you can do this, and you've got all this potential, and then two months go by and we have to fire that person because we realize they're not changing, they're not doing things differently, they are who they were when we hired them, and... So I feel like sometimes there's this balance between mercy and justice. And I think sometimes I'm too much on the side of mercy and not enough on the side of justice. And it hurts the business sometimes. So the main thing I look at is we've got to hire the right people from the get-go. And so we're looking for certain things. Like we look for three things in the people we hire. We look for competence, we look for culture, and we look for hustle. And competence means they can do the job. Whatever we're hiring them to do, if it's social media marketing, they know how to do social media marketing. Just basic competence at the job. That's number one. Number two is culture. And when I say culture, I mean we hire people who are nice, people who are easy to work with. Google did a study. They spent millions of dollars trying to figure out what the ideal employee is, and they figured out nice people. Those are the ideal employees. We just need to hire nice people. And so we look at that and say, yeah, we need nice people that are easy to work with, that you can talk to, that are reasonable, that don't get bent out of shape when you give them constructive feedback, things like that. So we look for nice people. And then we look for hustle. And when I say hustle, I don't mean just like working hard or being really fast or looking busy all the time. When we say hustle, we mean ownership. We want people who look at something and take ownership of it and say, I'm going to handle this the way I would handle it if if I owned this, if this were my business, when they're looking at a client. And so those are the three things that kind of feed into our co- overall culture that we're looking for. And those are the type of we bring, people we bring in and, and that we've seen perform well within MWI. Before we say goodbye, I'd like to ask all of my guests a few rapid fire questions. I'll, I'll go through them quickly. Your answers don't need to be too short though. But the first one is, what do you spend too much time doing now? I spend too much time on tasks that could be done by somebody that I can pay $10 an hour to do. And the reason I do that is because we need to hire 10 people and I can't afford to hire a personal assistant right now. But man, I really need a personal assistant. And I would advise entrepreneurs to seriously consider hiring a personal assistant early on in their careers because let's say that two thirds of your time is taken up doing work that you could hire somebody for 10, 15 bucks an hour to do. That means that you're only doing 30% of what you could do. And if you could offload another third of what you're doing to somebody else, you would double what you're doing. How much would you pay to have a clone of yourself and double yourself? And now look at how much a personal assistant costs. It's like, you know, I would have to go hire... If, if I wanted to duplicate myself, I'd go out, I'd have to go hire somebody for $150,000, $200,000. But I can go hire a personal assistant for thirty dollars or $40,000, and then I can just do twice as much work without spending twice as much time at the office or anything like that. And I've doubled myself for $30,000 instead of $150,000. So I would get started on that earlier because, man, there's so much stuff I need to offload right now, and it just kills me when I'm doing work that I know anybody out there could do. The second one is if as all of that low-value work was wiped off of your plate, what would you then spend more time doing? I would spend a lot more time right now on setting up the systems for expanding our offices and working on kind of manual types, 
when I say manual, like creating a manual sort of thing, like a book on here's how you open additional offices, here's how we go into Singapore or the Philippines and we open an office of MWI there because that's a big focus right now. And I would just like to map that all out and say, here are all the steps. Here's a checklist that we can just run down and we can scale out these offices really quick. And then I'd be focusing time on going out there and finding the right people to bring in and start those offices and head up those offices. And then what are you hoping to accomplish in the next quarter? Uh, So I'm here in Shenzhen, China, and we're looking to really get an office up and running here. I mean, it's kind of up and running, but I'm the one running it. And we're looking to bring in some other people to run it and head up the office. So I'm hoping within the next quarter, that's all finalized. We've got that going. We're talking to somebody in Singapore about starting an office there. We're talking to another guy about opening an office in New York City. If we could get those three things done, that would be incredible. But I'd be happy even if we just get one of those things done and it's successful and up and running. Yeah, usually when I ask the, the goal about the next quarter, I, I don't hear about opening multiple offices. But I'm, I'm excited to see how that all works out. And honestly, um, seeing the drive that you have in, and how far you've come in the systems that you have in place, I'm sure the future is very bright for MWI. So before we say goodbye, though, Joshua, I just wanted to ask if listeners want to follow along your story, if they want to see what you are all up to at MWI and you personally, where is the best place for them to go? Uh, best place is my personal blog. It's joshsteimley.com. Awesome. So I'll make sure to get that linked up in the show notes. And Josh, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was a lot of fun chatting. Thank you so much, Andy, for the opportunity. Most people would have quit well before putting in over a decade of propping up a failing agency, but Josh stuck it out, and as this agency crosses the $3 million a year mark with no signs of slowing down, I'm sure he's glad he made that decision. When Josh got serious about turning the agency around and took stock of things, it was obvious to him that there were some fundamental aspects of running an agency that he simply wasn't suited to do himself. Partnering with Corey was the right decision because of all the things he struggled with himself were areas that Corey excelled, and Josh trusted him above all else. In any partnership, Both sides need to bring something to the table, and you can't expect the addition of one new person to turn things around overnight, but if you're lacking in a key area of your business and know the right person to fill in, it can make a tremendous difference. For the Forbes partnership, I just want to say that over $2 million from a single blog post is absolutely insane, and I'm not going to pretend that those results are typical, but if you can achieve a fraction of that, which you absolutely can, then it could really move the needle for your agency, especially when you repeat the process again and again. Even if you aren't looking for any sort of partnership at all, it's crucial to build your network early so that if and when the time does come, you know who to reach out to. Many of the best partnerships come about when neither party is actually actively looking for one. So make sure to build the foundation early so that these opportunities can happen. That's all I have for you this week. If you enjoyed the show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review telling me what it was that you learned. I love hearing from listeners and positive reviews help us grow our audience. So if you can take a second to do that, I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, if your agency is looking to hire remote contractors or maybe even looking for a few extra projects and are tired of paying huge fees to Upwork, head over to talent.hubstaff.com and create a profile. It's 100% free. All right, I'll talk to you next week. See ya.